Julia Ciccone. I'm the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities. Thank you for coming to the fifth, uh, excuse me, the fourth of five salons that are part of our Moments of Change series. And if you have not yet picked up the brochure, uh, we do have a few available back there, but I'm sure by now most of you are familiar with the Moments of Change series. Um, uh, incredible to think that we're coming toward the end of this third annual Moments of Change this year. We have been looking and exploring the late 18th century, the period from between 1776 to 1801. Uh, among the 40 plus events that are part of this year's Moments of Change, uh, we have the, the uh, salon series. And the lecture tonight is the fourth, as I mentioned, of the five salons. Um, the lecture is uh, going to be given tonight by uh, Jacqueline Reed Walsh, who is a associate professor of education and women's studies here at Penn State. And uh, um, we're also very grateful to the Penn State University Libraries and specifically to Sandra Seltz, who is the uh, curator of uh, rare books and manuscripts, which is part of special collections in the libraries, for bringing uh, to this room a number of rare books uh, part of the collection and uh, we're going to have a chance uh, a little bit later to get up and come up close and view all of these uh, beautiful books that have been put on display so beautifully by Sandra Stelz. Uh, before I say a few more words about tonight, I do want to draw to your attention the fact that as most of you probably know, Tony Morrison is coming to town. Uh, she's going to be here on the 7th of April. She will be receiving the Institute for the Arts and Humanities Medal for Distinguished Contributions to the Arts and Humanities. Uh, the medal itself will be presented that evening at 8 p.m. in Eisenhower uh, by President Spanier, President of Penn State. Uh, and uh, I hope that all of you will be able to attend. Tickets are free, but they are required. Uh, and they uh, are available starting today. And all the information is on your flyer. You can call and reserve, or you can go by the Eisenhower and other locations and pick up your tickets. Uh, they're going fast. Uh, so I will warn you, if you have not already called or picked up, do so very, very soon. I would say maybe tomorrow, if at all possible, because they are going extremely fast, as you can imagine. But it's going to be a real honor to have them here, and we're very excited. Um, so, um, I just want to mention also that the next salon, the next and final uh, Moments of Change salon will be on April 14th in this same room. It's uh, Wednesday evening uh, from 7 to 8.30 as usual. And uh, that presentation will be given by Eric McKee, who is an associate professor in um, the School of Music. He teaches music theory here at Penn State. And the subject of that salon will be Revolutions on the Ballroom Dance Floor the demise of the aristocratic minuet and the rise of the egalitarian waltz. So that should be a lot of fun. Um, but this evening, again, we are very delighted uh, that Jacqueline uh, Reed Walsh and Sandra Stelz have agreed to be part of this series. The topic for this evening, as you can maybe see on the next slide. Sorry. It's there, there we are, is Instruction and Delight, the Transformation of Children's Literature and Culture in the 18th Century. Um, Professor uh, Reed Walsh is going to speak for about 45 minutes or so, 
Then we're going to have a short break for you to get some more coffee, some more tea if you would like to. And then uh, without your coffee and without your tea, we're going to come close to these beautiful books and, uh, and view them up close. And I'm sure that uh, both of you will be there and grateful for the lack of any liquids or food. And we will be able to view them up close and uh, hear more about these wonderful books. So again, thank you for coming. And uh, Professor Lee Walsh will talk to us now. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming out on a sometimes sunny and sometimes rainy evening. Um, Sandy and I were worried about moving the books from the library to the car. Was it going to rain? But we managed to do it all right. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk to you about a passion of mine, which is um, early children's books. And I'm going to um, argue... Can we have it louder, please? Oh, you can't hear me? No, I'm talking here. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, I'm going to talk about how at the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, there was a change that happened in the history of children's books. Can you hear me now? That's loud. Do you want to move to the front? <laughs> um, okay, so most histories of children's literature um, have a trajectory of, of the history of children's books going from instruction to delight. And they argue that this occurred in the middle of the 19th century, when we have the famous writers like Lewis Carroll. It's it's you could just project more. It's at the maximum volume. I think it's the noise. Our fake fireplace or something? <laughs> um, we got the smell and we got the noise. Um, so most people argue that the change in children's literature came about in the mid-Victorian period with Lewis Carroll and with Edward Lear um, when they started writing nonsense literature. But I'm going to argue that we can see a shift uh, in the history of children's books and the end of the 18th century going into the early 19th century um, if we consider different types of texts as books and also if we look at the form of the book as well as the content. Okay. Um, So what I'm going to do now is briefly give you a history of children's books, including, and I'm going to try to focus on, um, texts that could have multiple uses and texts that aren't normally considered to be a book, okay? So I'm going to begin with horn books. And these were made of horn. Oh my god, I get two more. These were made of wood, um, and what you had to protect sticky fingers from messing up the paper, you had a piece of horn from animals that was melted and placed on top with a precursor of plastic. And rich children <laughs> had them made of ivory or made of silver, all right? So these are examples I got that are from a very early period, from the Renaissance. Um, but the other, my little joke about these books is that they were also shaped like bats. So when you got bored with reading, you could play with them, okay? And so this is a picture of two children. This is from a book called The History of the, of the Battle Door, and a horn book. And you can see how children could use them in a precursor of badminton. Well, actually, the next uh, early type of reader for children 
was called Battledore from Shadowcock and Badminton, a precursor of Badminton. And they were um, little cardboard fold-up sheets that had beautiful images and a few letters and a prayer. Um, but these are important historically because they have lovely illustrations and I want you to notice the fashionable dress, okay? Which we're going to talk a little bit later in some other examples, the types of clothing that girls were wearing around the, in the early 19th century. Okay. Um, most histories of children's literature talk a great deal about religious children's literature. And indeed, the Puritans were a really important point. And I'm just going to show you a few examples of illustrated texts and poetic texts um, that show a combination of delight in the terms of images or sound to go with a very strict uh, educational system. Now, these are a couple of images from the New England Primer. And this existed in many, many editions. But what's interesting about it is the little pictures were connected to trying to teach the alphabet. And actually, if you study the history of this book, it got stricter. Okay? The 17th century example had Adam's fall, but it also had the cat doth play and later slay. A dog will bite a thief at night. It had animals and domestic things. The later versions became more and more religious, and it was completely biblical. Um, now, in the early 18th century, um, a much gentler form of religious education came about with Isaac Watts. And I think he's important because he brought the notion of poetry being pleasure into children's literature. And he believed that if something is rhymed, you could remember it more, more easily. And he was also a famous hymn writer, and many of you that go to the Anglican Church, let's not call that here in Canadian, sorry. Episcopal uh, may still sing um, his hymns, okay? Um, but this importance of verse, simple rhyme that help you aid, help you remember what you were saying or thinking or praying, um, he believed this is incredibly important. And he also believed, he also hoped these songs he wrote might counterbalance uh, the nursery rhymes, which he called loose and dangerous sonnets. He was really worried that children shouldn't read junk and they should read good and improving text. But well, they were beautifully presented in terms of sound. Um, this whole idea of instruction and delight was, was very famous by um, philosopher uh, John Locke, who um, believed that children should be um, learn to read as if it were play, okay? So he believed that learning should be a play recreation for children, and that um, play things should be made to teach children how to read. So he came up with a prototype of a Scrabble game, um, dice with letters on it, and so on. So he was advocating playing into learning. Um, and he also believed that children um, love to be free, and they should be allowed to be busy, and they shouldn't be uh, punished, and so on. He was really interested in the aristocratic boys, but he said he saw a girl as a weak boy. I teach women's studies, so I'm always talking about gender. But at least he didn't put them in a box. He said, raise your girls as much as you can like a boy, but you have to worry about her complexion more. And he said about fashion, try to let her not be straight-laced. So he was promoting more freedom. Um, 
The first commercial children's uh, publisher is called John Newbery, and the Newbery Award is, is named after him. It's given every year in the United States. And he um, came up with the first commercially viable children's literature. He could make a living at it. And this is his pretty little pocketbook. Um, and he appropriated uh, folk characters of um, Jack the Giant Killer. Um, he also sold merchandise you could buy for an extra sixpence. So he invented the tie-in. You know, we think of nowadays, you go to a film, you tie-in book. Well, Newbery figured it out. Um, so you have this little uh, pocket book, which was consisting of children's rhymes and games and alphabet. And for an extra sixpence, for girls, you could have a pincushion, and for boys, you could have a ball. Um, but these were moral toys, because he also sold pins. And in the letter from Jack the Giant Killer to the kids, um, he said, well, there's 10 pins, and the ball and the pincushion are two colors. And you stick the pins. If you've been good, they go into the red side. And if you've been bad, you go into the, bad side, uh, the black side. And once you have 10 um, of either, if you've been good, I will give you a penny, and if you've been bad, I will come and beat you up. So this was uh, John Newbery using the voice of the popular uh, Jack the Giant Killer to try to educate and also cajole children to learn through commercial uh, game. Um, and he was a real character. Um, this is, you may have heard the phrase, little goody two-shoes. I myself was called that in school because I was always sucking up to the teacher. But actually, she was a teacher, little goody two-shoes is the first female heroine as teacher in literature. Um, and she's quite marvelous. She taught herself to read. Um, then she taught children using the, pre the ideas from John Locke. And she made a precursor of Scrabble. She cut letters onto pieces of wood, carried them in her basket, went to teach the children in the morning. Um, and at the end, she's rewarded with being a schoolmistress. So I see here as a proto-feminist. Um, she only marries the rich guy after she's head of the school. Great. So um, anyway, Little Goody Two-Shoes is a, is a marvelous little tale. No one knows who wrote it. Um, um, a lot of famous writers, people thought Dr. Johnson or uh, Goldsmith may have wrote it because it's anonymous. Um, maybe Newbery wrote it himself. We don't know. But it's a, a lovely little story. Um, and there's illustrations. And, and, and always the reader is, con is uh, told to look at the illustrations as they're reading. And then he also plugged his own um, pow uh, Newbery sold a powder on the side to, for health reasons. And her father died because he didn't have any access to James powder, which is what Newbery sold. <laughs> so he was always promoting himself tell, um, in any possible way. So he would have loved the internet. That's my theory. Anyway, um, another example of, of early children's books that were pleasurable. Um, of course, other fairy tales, and we have some lovely Grimm brothers here. But here is a, a Perrault, um, which was translated in the early uh, 18th century into English. And this is a, if you notice the frontispiece, you see Mother Goose's tales. And what's really, really interesting, I think, coming from Canada, which is more British than the States, is when we say Mother Goose, I think of nursery rhymes. I don't think of stories. but. Newbery put Mother Goose's tales on, um, on his friend's piece. And so if you're in England, you think more of the story. So it's interesting how Mother Goose, as a teller of tales, is, con is on one side of the Atlantic associated with stories, and on the other associated with rhymes. Um, now, of course, 
um, fairy tales in both um, Perot and Grimm were also um, intended, intended to be educational. So Perot, for example, his stories had detachable morals. He would tell the story, then he would have a moral afterwards. And of course, as they got more popular, people forgot the morals. And you completely forget there's morals now. For example, the most notorious is Little Red Riding Hood, um, in which um, you know, she goes along, and this, this version of Little Red Riding Hood, she ends up being eaten by the wolf as well as her grandmother, and there's no rescue. That's the Grimm Brothers version. The hunter comes and rescues them, is the Grimm Brothers version. Um, but um, there's a moral that Perot attached at the end to suggest that the wolf was perhaps a metaphorical wolf and wasn't an animal at all, about gentlemen following young girls who are unwary into their homes. So he had this sort of tongue-in-cheek approach um, and playing around with uh, the young girls of the court who the book was intended to. Now the Gr Brothers Grimm, and we have a lovely first edition here, um, is of course a translation of the Grimm Brothers book. And it was translated into English again in the early, in the early 19th century. And actually the Brothers Grimm went back and redid a version in German after it was translated into English when they realized it could be really popular with children, which is a very interesting um, example of cross-country um, relationship. Now, the opposite side of, um, I mentioned earlier uh, um, about Isaac Watts being worried about loose and dangerous sonnets and you should read good, uh, good edifying poetry instead. Um, nursery rhymes and lurid tales were circulated from, I would say, the Renaissance on um, in chapbooks, which are really little inexpensive, one penny sheets folded, um, sold by um, chapmen um, who went around the countryside or peddlers selling their wares. Um, anyway, um, these little books carried very lurid stories, um, and some of which we have here today. We have a Tom Thumb we're going to show you. Some early versions of the English folk tales appeared in the chapbooks. Um, later on in the 18th century, um, the second major philosopher of childhood that was very influential, of course, is Rousseau. And Rousseau, um, he has many, many ideas that we have from him. But one thing is this whole idea of childhood as being a distinct stage of life, completely separate from adulthood, and not just on the way to get there, that childhood was valuable by itself. That's an important point. Um, a second, he was focused on making an education suitable to children. Of course, he didn't believe in books at all. Um, the only book he would allow Emile to have was a Robinson Crusoe. He was and then, of course, he gets worse. But anyway, um, I mean, I like Rousseau, except he doesn't like girls. Um, the other point that we, we really carry from Rousseau was the idea I would call a problem-posing or active education, in which the child is supposed to be curious about something uh, and guided by the tutor to uh, ask questions about something and learn directly from nature. This is a, a, an idea that we have as a hangover from Rousseau. But unfortunately, like many brilliant men, um, he had a blind spot about girls. And, um, his whole understanding of this brilliant education, when he gets to the ideal girl who will eventually marry Emile, he, well, he gives us Barbie. Basically, I blame Barbie on Rousseau. Um, and if you read this, you'll see that how he talks about how boys like 
toys with movement like drums, toy carts, tops, whereas girls prefer things that please the eye, um, jewelry, mirrors, finery, and especially dress, uh, and dolls. Uh, he says the doll is a girl's special plaything. It very obviously shows her instinctive taste for her life's purpose. The physical aspect of the art of pleasing is found in one dress, and this physical side of the art is the one the child can cultivate. He goes on. But he has this line that just infuriates me still. It says, when girls grow up, they become their own doll. And so ever since afterwards, and I'm going to talk a bit about Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Edgeworth, trying to argue with Rousseau, which one did not dare do, he's the famous philosopher of the age, um, we see this gender stereotyping, the connection with girls and dress and seduction spelled out in 1762. So I get cross at him still. Getting hot. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> all right. Um, so, um, in the latter part of the 18th century, uh, some more context for this idea of sort of active education, children as active knowers, and so on, um, were uh, some ideas of William Hooper, who created a book called Rational Recreations, including sort of chemistry experiments, magic shows, things that kids could do at home to learn about science. Um, then the other major theorists who follow from Rousseau were Maria and uh, Richard Edgeworth, who were a father and daughter team. And um, they wrote, we have a beautiful edition of, of the practical education here. And they divided, um, the first chapter in their book is about toys, and they divide toys into um, fashionable toys and useful toys. And they thought fashionable toys were totally useless, and the child should break them. That's the only sensible reaction but it's that you should have a cart, or girls should learn how to sew, or you could make a, um, Maria Edgeworth said that she really didn't approve of, the, of dolls, meaning the fashion doll, but she said, how can you argue against Rousseau, who said it was great, and she, and, and she was very uncomfortable. But she said, I can argue against dollhouses. She said, he didn't talk about dollhouses. So what she would argue was, you would have a, get the boys to help make the dollhouse, and the girls could perhaps design the furniture in the, for, the, for inside. But she didn't like a furnished dollhouse, she, like a Barbie house or something, precursor, um, by 200 several years, um, because there was nothing to do. So these ideas of, of the Edgeworths are still influencing us in many ways, and they're absolutely fascinating. Um, they also criticized the popular culture, um, but there was a whole very strong popular visual culture, which we're going to see coming into some of the toys. Um, Maria Edgeworth also wrote um, stories for children, and she was part of a group of mainly women writers called the Rational Moralists. And what they had the difficult task of doing was combining Locke and Rousseau, who didn't really talk about books very much, and write books using the ideas of Locke and Rousseau. It was quite a challenge, um, but they, they did it. Um, and so what they did was they created childcare, very well-designed stories. Maria Edgeworth was the best writer. Um, which showed how um, a child could learn through her, his or her experiences what was right and what was wrong. Instead of being told what is right or what wrong, the child in the story would figure it out. And the best writer, as I say, is uh, Maria Edgeworth, who wrote a lovely sequence of stories featuring Rosamond, who was basically who's supposed to be based on herself as a little girl. And she's always, and we have a copy of one of her books here, um, and there's this lovely story called The Purple Jar, and poor Rosamond is shopping in London with her mother, because at the end of the 18th century, London, 
became a mecca of shopping. And the beautiful um, um, new front windows were invented then, so you could go and see all the wares. So Rosamond wanted to buy toys, and then she wanted to buy jewelry, and then she wanted to buy hat. Because um, every time, every window she walked by, she wanted to buy. And then they went by a chemist shop, and she saw this beautiful purple jar. Oh, and she wanted to buy it. So her mother took her next to the shoemaker, which was smelly, because it was a cobbler, not a nice shoe store. I mean, of course you'd want the shoe, but a smelly cobbler. She said, no, 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 I don't want to buy my shoes. But I said, well, you've only got so much money, the shoe or the glass jar. So she bought the purple jar. She took it home. Of course, it's useless. It's full of smelly purple liquid. It's not even pretty. And her mother makes her way a whole month uh, to buy shoes next time they go shopping. So at the very, very end, Rosamond says, oh, mommy, yeah, not mommy, oh, mother, um, I hope I have learned my lesson about what not to do. And then, of course, the next story, she has it, and it goes on and on. But she's it shows the child sort of learning from experience, trying to reason through. And she's a delightful, she's the first delightful child, really, we see um, in, children's, in children's literature. Okay, um, around the uh, latter part of the 18th century, there was a whole genre of books that I'm quite passionate about, uh, called movable books, and I apologize to people who have heard me speak before about movable books. Um, but these are books that combine features of toy and game together with book. And the publishers and printmakers of the period, this, they, they took the ideas of Locke and Rousseau and even though they would claim not to be influenced, they were, market, they were publishing things, making things that would appeal uh, to middle-class parents. And so um, there's a project that Sandy and I and Steve and, and Linda Frien were all working on here in the library to do a digital project on some early movable books, which are very fragile because the parts are moved. Um, and we're trying to create an interactive digital website which means you can play with the book. And I'm going to show you one screen at the very end of a prototype. Um, and the project is going to begin with flat books, which are just little books that have flaps that you fold up and down. Um, and they're very, very fragile um, because they were very inexpensive in the 18th century. Uh, they were aimed for an audience that was partly literate. Um, so you could look at the pictures, turn the flap up and down, read a few words. Um, and now they're extremely um, difficult to find and expensive. Um, now, flat books, there were many types. Some were religious, some were teaching moral behavior, and some were pure fun. So what we have at Penn State here um, is an example of a, of a rare religious book, but you'll see what, what a flat can do to religious teaching um, in a minute. Um, and here's my bad photographs, and later you'll see what can be done when, when a designer who knows what he's doing does what he, what he can do. So this is a little book, and it's sideways, you can see, but um, the flaps go up and down. It looks like a book, um, and they use every bit of space. It was published in Philadelphia from the late 18th century. Every little bit of space is used. Um, so they put little letters in and uh, numbers, so girls using their needles learn and so they wouldn't waste any space. So after you read the story, you could work on the letters and numbers. Um, so this is the beginning. I'm just showing you the first, there's four parts. Uh, this is Adam in the Garden of Eden. I want you to notice the tree with the serpent wrapped around, okay? You lift the flap up, ah, we have Eve. 
and notice that the surface head is closer, okay? To turn the flap down, Eve turns into a mermaid. That's the intended logic. And there's a lecture about evil women and their mermaids inside, okay? But the flaps tend to fall that wrong way. So here we have the unintended transformation and we have a mermaid. And the whole book is like this. You can go against the whole teaching by playing with the flaps. Um, and it's a hoop. And I've seen at the Coatesville Library at Princeton some child-made ones. So children love, made their own. And of course, one is called the Merman's Diversion. I just love it. <laughs> so you can see what he or she liked most. OK. Um, another type of flap book were uh, conduct-based. And in the late 18th century, there was a genre of book called the conduct book, which is written for like teenage girls. Uh, Evelina is one of the most famous ones, written by Fanny Burney. And basically, the heroine goes through all these trials and tribulations, and at the end, uh, she learns how to behave properly. Okay? Um, so this is like a graphic novel form of um, conduct book for younger girls. And I'm going to make a gender point, okay? I'm going to show you the girls, one of the girls one, but I'm going to show you the boys one, and it's not quite the same moral loading, okay? So here we have a little girl, and this is using the emblem book tradition. I won't go there. But anyway, you can see from the beautiful images and the, the way the signage is, how it's uh, drawn on the emblem book tradition. This is a little girl. Um, if you turn the flap up and down, you can see she's been bad at school, okay? She starts off being bad at school. Um, this is a how, if you're a good girl, what will happen to you? And this is a very elegant young woman with her, a burning heart, which is like taking the emblem of the heart for her virtue and piety, and you see the heavens above. But the last episode, there's four parts always, is this little girl who is in a graveyard. She's brought horror to her. By acting badly, she has destroyed her family and her whole life, okay? Very, very harsh, right? Complete with the gravestone, and she suffers in eternity forever. By contrast, the boys' book um, is very lovely, okay? We start out in a cradle. You lift the flap, it becomes a rocking horse. You lift the flap, it gets older, it becomes a real horse, okay? Then you have two more episodes. And the last episode is him as a young man contemplating matrimony. We see his uh, wife, and then he has a little girl. So, as you can see, this is not quite the same. There's a very different moral loading going on. So it was actually after Rousseau, we have him to thank, after Rousseau, uh, we started to see a real gender coding uh, in a way we still recognize now. Um, okay, this is my little chat about how you can play with the flat books and how um, when the flaps fall off and down, um, they can disturb the um, moral, but the, the message is still driven home. Now, these are texts of play based on the pantomimes, uh, which are very popular in England uh, in the late 18th century. Um, and I'm going to show you a few examples of flat books that take the harlequinade section of a pantomime and visualize it for you. Okay? These perhaps were sold as extras. If you went to the show, for six pence, you could have a souvenir that you could look at. Um, so here is a trick, a famous trick. This is my bad picture from the British Library, I apologize. Um, then they also were experimenting with, I would say, early animation. So by putting the flap 
through the middle of the body, you will see Harlequin move, okay? And then here's another one. You'll also see a trick being performed. Um, here's another one. If you look at the image on the left, I know I'm pointing this and not shining it. I've never done this before. Forget it. <laughs> um, if you look in the left, you will see clown standing in front of a closet with a, a skeleton in it. You know the joke? Skeleton in the closet. Who's actually Harlequin? When Harlequin comes out of the closet, um, we see when you lift up the flap, the clown is disturbed, and then he runs away. Okay? If you flip it quickly, you get a little bit of animation. But on the right-hand side, there's a participatory uh, game going on in which the washerwoman is really Harlequin. You can only tell it because it's the bottoms of his, of his uh, trousers show underneath the dress. Okay, so what these were the rubrics, and there was no nothing being taught at all. Around 1770, um, the publishers in London started to make these books made purely for fun. Nothing was being taught. If anything, they were satirical. Um, okay. Also, around the beginning of the 19th century, this idea of books as toys was, was really gathering steam. And here are some examples of miniature books. And we have an exquisite example from the library. Um, John Marshall pr first produced these. And so they're, they're little tiny books, full text. And some were so tiny you had a magnifying glass to read them. Um, and they were sold in a little case. And they're quite um, lovely. Um, also, around 1910, sorry, 1810. Like, am I saying 1900 the whole time? I'm sorry. <laughs> I meant 1810. Um, we start to see um, other examples of toy book combinations. And one is paper doll books. And we have some examples here. Again, you see gender beautifully uh, displayed. And we, here we have little Fanny, okay? And she's a little girl who, at the beginning, will only play with her doll. She does not want to be a good little girl. She doesn't want to read. She just wants to play. Um, she's too obsessed with clothes. And when she ends up running away um, and becomes a beggar girl. And the rest of the book tells her these little adventures where she has to you know, sell eggs. Um, and finally, she's selling other dairy products. She goes to her mother's house and selling these things. She's recognized by her mother, and she's taken home. And she's reformed, and at the end, you see her holding the book. So she's learned, no more dolls, she will now read. On the other hand, little Henry, who is sold as a companion to Little Fanny, this is the second edition, um, he uh, starts off in front of his manor house, looks like Pendley or something. <laughs> um, anyway, um, he is lost by the nursery maid, no fault of his own. Um, he is sold uh, to a chimney sweep. Um, he rises and goes through the army, then he goes through the navy, he becomes a midshipman. At the end, you see him conquering a lamb, then he goes home, the, the hero. And what you actually see here is the beginning of the boy's adventure story in 1810. Robert Louis Stevenson was not till the end of the century. So you start to see in these play game books, the beginning of a genre that we associate with late, much later uh, in the century. So what's interesting about these books um, is that you're playing with them flat. Um, we also have an example of a Cinderella, which is a teenage heroine, um, and there's a coach which you, you're supposed to stand up. So you start to see playing around with three-dimensional as well as flat. And, and, and the way you play with them is you stuck the head in the body. You didn't stick the dress on the body. Right? You didn't stick the, yeah, you stuck the head in the dress, okay? 
So this is how you play with the, um, the doll. Okay, so you read the story and you animated it by um, dressing the doll, putting the head of the doll. Um, but what's fun about this, they were all the same size. So, and they were sold as sets to, you know, to well-off children. So the girls could play the boys' adventures, if you wish. And I, I've seen a child homemade ones in which a girl um, had added an extra episode to one of the boys' books. Um, and so you can see her playing and having an adventure, which she was not allowed to have. She wasn't allowed to join a movie or anything. Okay. Um, my last example of um, artifacts that are crossed between a toy and a book um, are toy theaters, um, which uh, were very, very popular across Europe um, in the beginning of the 19th century. Um, in England, they were seen as middle-class boys' play um, because when they came home from school, they had to do something. And so parents bought these very, very elaborate toy book combinations for them. And um, again, it was Robert Louis Stevenson at the end of the century who made them famous because he wrote a very famous story, um, essay about playing with them um, in Edinburgh. Now, the, these, are, these are my, again, my terrible pictures that I took at the Victorian Albert with my little camera. Um, this is one of the earliest examples. And so these, there are about 300 of these plays. They're based, there are some quality ones based on Shakespeare. There are some based on Sir Walter Scott, who was very popular. But most of them were based on pantomimes, the circus, uh, very much like the Harlequin Eight books, popular entertainment. Um, so here we have a trick in which the statue comes alive. Um, you have, uh, I like this one because we have a girl who's at Amazon and actually rescues the guy, okay? Um, and this is a very early one from 1811. Um, we also see adventure narratives. They, they, the boys love these. Um, you also have explosions, and you can buy blue and red fire for extra cost. Um, and this Miller and his man was the most popular melodrama on the stage, and it was the most popular toy theater play. And I always think of James Bond movies, you know, at the end when everything blows up. I mean, you, and it's true, because the bad guy's girlfriend, his mom, is the one who actually blows up. She's converted by the good people. She blows up the mill. Um, the bad guys are killed. The good people all run away, and there we have it. And you could, for extra money, you could even buy a, a little uh, wooden uh, structure that would collapse. And it was very, very popular. Um, and this is a, a toy shop in London now that sells uh, English toy theaters. And there's a very vigorous tradition of toy theater uh, aficionados who perform. And there's also a very active uh, group in Denmark. And they have festivals and everything. Um, OK, so these were incredibly complex. There was a little uh, script. There was all these cutouts. Um, you had to put them together. You had to mount them on slides. Um, you had to build the stage. And you played. But if you read these little scripts, which are delightful, they're really reduced. Um, they're mainly stage directions, like enter left with fire, and a lot of battle scenes, and you can see how boys would just have adored these. Um, some girls uh, that became actresses played with these as well, but they were mainly a boys' um, activity. So that's my bibliography. This is my favorite book when I teach the history of children's literature, if you're ever interested. It's by Canadian uh, Patricia Demers, and it's totally uh, brilliant. Um, and if I can get this to work, I don't know how to do this. I just wanted to show you um, 
this project we're starting here, it's, um, it's that Metamorphosis book, but it's an interactive um, blog site that a designer, Dave Stong, made. And you can actually lift, you can lift the flaps virtually, and, and it protects the book at the same time. So this is a project we're just engaged with, trying to preserve, yet give access to these fascinating toy book combinations. So, what do you want, you do? You want okay. to just show, just show how you can lift it? And there's four episodes. So Adam and Eve always, and then we have a lion who turns into a Griffith who steals a baby. And then, yeah, and you can close them again. Isn't that cool? And it doesn't wreck Sandy's beautiful book either because it's virtual. And then this, what, this, this third one is always about a miser. And then the last one, he's going to turn to a skeleton. Now, the original of this text was 1650 in England, so it was actually a Puritan text that crossed the Atlantic. Um, it was a very, very simplistic text. And at the end of the 18th century, in Philadelphia, they started making this really elaborate one. And to go back to the, the snake that moves its head, you can see the influence of the theatrical uh, holoquines in this religious book. So it's really very cool. And so it was published in Philadelphia and New York from late 1770s until about 1825. And so it's an incredibly popular book. So this is the project we're starting. So thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs>